From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, this is ReSound. Um, I like, um, the, I like, uh, the, I don't like it. Um, and I like, and I would like, I, I like, um, Each week on ReSound, we bring you audio works from around the world. They might be the efforts of a first-time producer or a seasoned veteran. It could be a comedy, a personal narrative, an investigative piece, or an experimental soundscape. Usually our stories have been heard at least once. But today, something a little different. Work that has never been heard. At least, not yet. I'm Gwen Maxi. The producers of ReSound, when not working on the radio show, all have other audio projects that they're working on for some driving reason. And I think it's safe to say that money is not one of them. On today's show, we want to premiere two of them. Julie Shapiro, managing director of the Third Coast Festival, looks at the world of competitive model horse collecting. That's little plastic horses. Bet you didn't even know there was such a thing. You can do everything you can with a model horse that you can with a real horse and ride it. (laughs) And I go back to find out what happened to one of my junior high classmates who was killed five years ago at the hands of a Chicago policeman. He was a very compassionate person. Uh, As a child, he was compassionate. He played the role of a protector and a peacemaker. Stay with us. If you had your druthers and you could have any kind of lunchbox ever in the whole world, what kind would you have? I would have a, a pony lunchbox with a rainbow over it. Julie Shapiro is the managing director of the Third Coast International Audio Festival and, not to mention, a resident redhead. When she was younger, she was an equestrian, still is actually, who competed at the highest levels. In fact, she made it all the way to Madison Square Garden, every young writer's dream. Except that that particular year... They changed the venue to the Meadowlands in New Jersey. How annoying is that? Recently, when her parents started cleaning out their house to get ready to move, they came across all her old Briar model horses. Everyone in the know just calls them Briars. And in typical parent cleaning out the house fashion, they said, Here, dear, you take them. Julie then discovered that things have really changed since she was a collector. Now people well, all girls, really, take their model horses, horses that are store-bought and factory-made, to model horse shows, where, like with real horses, they compete and are judged and are actually awarded ribbons, despite the fact that every horse there is plastic and came out of a mold. Once she discovered this, she felt compelled to investigate, and needless to say, she brought her tape recorder along. She talked to competitors, judges, even the manufacturers, And for many of them, the distinction between real live horses and fake plastic horses is a little blurry. Julie calls this piece, Are There Any More Rare Plastic Ponies? Okay, Bethany, how about we go ahead? We're going to pick up a posting trot. Girls grow up wanting ponies, I guess, since they can remember no matter what. This is just a way that they continue to want ponies. You know, horses are expensive to keep, to buy, 
to maintain and a lot of us don't have the money to be able to do that with a real horse. So in the model showing world, you can do everything you can with a model horse that you can with a real horse except ride it. <laughs> How, how are you actually judging these? Because they're pre-made, right? They're mm -hmm. pre-manufactured and people just buy which ones they want. And what are you actually judging? Judging the conformation of the horse, how, how well this represents the horse. You know, is the head too big, is the neck too long? Um, judging it with the breed that they pick for it. Just because it's named as one breed doesn't mean you have to show it at that breed. Um, it's a challenge both to me to choose what I think will be perfect and to meet the judge's expectations of what will be perfect. Some of these colors don't come in all breeds. And also like how good each buyer looks like. If there's a horse with like a bunch of scratches or something, he's not going to play. So definitely mark it down. You know, obviously winning is always a pleasure. Whether you know, no matter how easy or, or difficult it is. My name is Summer Kosyshek, I'm 33 years old. Over 20 years I've been collecting. I'm Melissa Hart, I'm 35, and I probably have about 100 horses. Jesse White, and I'm 10. How long have you been collecting? Um, for like five years now. Okay, my name is Sandy Schneider. I'm a few months past 17. <laughs> and. This is going to be an oxymoron because I've got my first horse in about 1960. So obviously it's a lot of months past 17. I've been collecting since 87, but I got I had four horses in the, up until the early 80s, and then they multiplied. I have about 2,500 of them now. Okay, my name's Margaret Jorgensmeyer. I'm 36. I think I got my first briar horse when I was about four. Right now, I have about 400. All right, can Claire Hunter John bring up other English, please? Last call, trying to quarter horse. Victoria Allen, and we're at um, Great Great Lakes Congress Live, and I'm 13 years old. My name's Alicia Strayer Mangan. I'm 38. I've been collecting for 31 years. I got my first horse in 1974. Oh, my name is Amanda Gambi. I'm 16 years old. I've been collecting for over 10 years. My name is Kirsten Wellman. I'm 26. Um, I've been collecting since I was about four. So my name is Tim Purdy. I'm 32 years old. Um, and I've been collecting for eight. My name is Krista Wasco. I'm 29. Just turned 29 for the first time yesterday. Um, I don't really know how many horses I have. I think uh, my name is Nancy Thompson. Somewhere probably I'm around 60. Actually, turning 37 I don't tomorrow. <laughs> 
And I got my first briar when I was three. Absolutely fell in love with horses when I was three. My sister had a collection. Um, she started taking horseback riding lessons, so I just kind of followed in my sister's shadow. Okay, uh, hi Julie, I'm Peter Stone, and uh, I'm the president of the Peter Stone Company, and we're located in Shipshawana, Indiana, and uh, this is our home base for the model horses called Stone Horses. A typical customer, other than us crazy adults, <laughs> is a little girl, usually I would say between 5 and 10, mm -hmm. something like yeah. that, that she has just fallen in Girls love. Girls grow up wanting ponies, I guess. And quite possibly her, her friends collect them, mm -hmm. or she sees something that reminds her of a horse that she's riding at the stable. And Collectors, yeah. primarily young girls who were fascinated with real horses, live horses, and had become accumulators of the model horses, and in that way uh, became emotionally connected to it. Or here I see a line from a seam that shouldn't be there, that isn't on some of the other molds. I see a line in the finish right through there. Mm -hmm. You see that? Um, so I look for that and just kind of take note of what I see. I look for any rubs. Hello, I'm Kim Gibson. I'm a full-time product research and development uh, consultant for Briar Animal Creations. So we'll just work our way down. My, um, uh, my first experience with the model horses uh, was uh, with my, of course, my father was Sam Stone. He was the founder of the Briar line known as the Briar Animal Creations of model horses. And the first model horse that he made at the Briar Company was in 1950. I was 10 years old at that time. So living in the Chicago area and the factory was on Chicago's Spot on the heel on the white. my spot there on the white. So and then you look to see if everything else is clear, like the paint marks. You look to see that they're a clear mark. Instead of being, um, sometimes they're, um, the mask moves when they're painting it. I, well, I love horses, and ever since I was little, well, my mom brought me home a briar model, and I've been collecting them ever since, and I still love them. They're beautiful. Uh, they're a really beautiful animal, and my mom was always a lot afraid of large animals. You have a lot of women that started collecting these horses as little girls, you know, because of the love of, of horses and... It's because they absolutely adore horses. I think just because I liked horses and it was an easy way for me to get a large number of horses and... and they develop an attachment uh, to the, the figurines themselves, you know, and this carries over all through their life into their adulthood, so they've come up with this activity to kind of justify their... I just love horses. Their, I love horses um, and my family and participation animal people, the collecting so it was the only way I could really have the horses model horse heart, as it were. You know, I rediscovered the hobby when I was in college, too. I had a roommate who um, had a lot of briars, and she got me back into it. And I'd never gotten the model horse magazines, like just about horses or horsing around. I'd never gotten those before. I'd never been to a show. And when I realized how much stuff there actually was to do with them, I was like, whoa, this is fun. It's an so, obsession. Yeah. It really is. It's almost yeah, a compulsive thing. Definitely. Um, yeah. Yep. Before I had my real horses, I always wanted a horse, and I never had a chance to get one. So this one helped me have horses somehow in my life. And even though they were only model, it was still a horse, and I still learned so much about even real horses from the model horses. So 
I guess it was just that I always loved horses and I loved playing with them. And they what? play, these kids will play with these things for hours. I mean, like I said, they have whole little worlds set up and they run, they fight, they'll be like stallions fighting and... I had just like my own little, my little barn and breeding and... Um, like, you know, this one was the mom, and this one was the dad, and this one was the baby, and, um... They play. Play. For real. Play. Oh, I and, and I, my dad built me a little barn, and I played. I played with them a lot, you know? Just like other girls play with Barbies, I played with horses. I didn't really have any friends who wanted to play horses with me, so I did it mostly by myself. I don't know, it was... I was always, you know, kind of a loner, so my horses were, were what I did. You know, I'd go and play with my horses for hours and set up barns and dolls and all that. Um, I don't know. It was kind of my sense of escape, you know, my little jaunt away from reality. So. And shoulder, step into the canter. Good girl. Bethany, a little leg. Kind of hanging on your hands, right? You let him step into our canter. Sometimes the um, the mask moves when we're painting it, so you can yeah, see marks on it. Um, so that's pretty good too. When it's natural with the finish. There's a spot above the All eye. All right, clear hunter John, bring up other so, English, please. Yeah. Last call, turn a quarter horn. Plan a circle, Liz. That's a little bit. Basically, they still have the same the same uh, attraction to to the form, the same love of the of the of the species, you know, that they they always have had, and this is their access to it. Many of these people might not be in a position to own horses. Themselves. For a lot of young girls, it's because they always but, wanted a real horse and couldn't have through one. This activity through the collecting of, of these pieces, you know, they can have that experience in in, in some way. Do you collect yourself? No, I do not. I work strictly in a professional capacity. So you have the particles from the, yeah, from the edge of the mold that were cleaned off at the top of the neck and here. But this could very well be a test piece. Why do women love horses? You know, books have been written about it, articles have been written about it. Um, they say that there is a... Uh, uh, connection between the feminine mystique and horses and how would we explain that what I have heard and I see possibly is the uh, the mastery of the large animal and Liz back to your trot there's something about the horse that appeals to women I, I don't know if it's it's the the grace and beauty of a, of a horse in motion. I, I think, think I think for girls it's more of a beauty thing. Horses are beautiful animals. We appreciate them more than men do. I think it's also the uh, subliminal idea of the power. They're so the powerful. Horse. You know, when so a, especially so a, it's like, a girl you know, growing up may not still these days feel quite as empowered as, as little boys in many areas of their life, but when they ride a horse they're managing this massive beast and it's under their control. I think that's some, that, that's very psychologically appealing to a, to a young girl. And I think that's where it starts. She is in charge of a thousand pounds of living, breathing, independently thinking creature. The, um, unconditional 
response, uh, love that horses respond directly to the caregiver. Yeah, there's just so many. I like I go out to the barn and I just my gal. He's just he's everything to me. He's just he's someone that I can just talk to and we just share a connection that I don't like. I I don't have with friends or people. It's just you know he loves you and he knows he knows I'm his own or he'll def he'll go to me instead of anyone else if there's a number of us in the arena and he's just standing there he'll walk to me and he, I know he's mine uh, dependency it, of the horse on the caregiver and I think there's some the very maternal uh, sort of connection in, in that regard it, so. they kind of become like your kids and like they mean a lot to you a little bit hard to put your finger on a little psychological kind of deep <laughs> kind of goes runs pretty deep why it's mostly girls uh, I don't know I suppose a psychologist could probably you know give you better insight on that but Um, I don't think boys look on it as a masculine thing. Here you're collecting, it's it's too akin to Barbies. It's not a truck, it's not a train, it's not something like that. I really don't know. <laughs> I think probably because horses just aren't macho enough for boys. No guys in my life understand it. I don't know. You know, we've we've wondered about that. There are a few men in the hobby, um, and there are a few boys in the hobby. As to why they don't stick with it, I can't answer. I don't know. I always wondered about that. <laughs> you know, that's a really good question. There's a few men in the hobby, but not very many. I just think that females are more detail oriented. It's, it's interesting, like. My boyfriend can't. He does. He does not understand horses. They're into like adventurous stuff, like skate. When guys are into stuff that's date, well, horse riding, I shouldn't say is dangerous because I've had my share of spills. Only dads, really. I don't know of any guys that do this. I bet you were super good, super super good. Uh, I suppose mature, like not maturity, but like I think they might get teased or made fun of. Or not looked at it in the same way, maybe. When it comes to briar horses being a girl thing, I think a lot of guys just don't understand how intrinsically cool it is. Guys tend to go towards trains, towards railroads. And if you think about it, we're doing Any more rare classic ponies? Going once, going twice, class closed. Girls grow up wanting ponies, I guess. And there's a meaning behind the name for every one of them. <laughs> uh, front row, let's see, we've got Little Black Horse, who is my Mustang, Pumas, I just put Nautical there, uh, 45, Excalibur, Draban, um, um, Social Graces, Sweetwater Poco, Pasquale, Flying Red Phoenix, Licorice, Little Miss Palsy, Calico, um, Taking Chances, Spotfire, The Darkest Hour, Fudge, Sandman, uh, Half Just Crown, an Illusion, Shades of Grey, On the Double, Struck by Magic, My Birthday Wish, and Van Helsing, and Dapple Dreamer. Because to me they're all unique individuals. It's just like you would remember anybody else's name, a person's name. You know, to me all of these horses are unique individuals. That one, I named it Moonlight when I actually don't, it didn't come with a name. 
this one, I named it Blizzard temporarily, and I don't know what its name is. And then this one's, I called it Nip Nipstick after this thoroughbred I like that got in an accident and died, but I named it after him, named her after it. And um, then the next one I got from Okay. Chance, yeah, well, let's, uh, in the back row, we've got Psychedelic Furs, Dark Diamond, L on Wheels, All That Jazz, and then I have Valentine, Misty, who I renamed Cherokee, uh, Bishop's and then Whiskey Jack. this one's name uh, is Zappy, Merchant, he's my Hackney Pony, Miss, and then my Percheron's name is Shorty, Summer, and then Song, that's Peppy, and Pfeffer, Brady. Brady's Peppy. Uh, Viola, Illudium, um, Cumulonimbus, uh, let's see, Luck Be a Lady, Can Do, Tuxedo, Dragon's Horde, Dr. Feelgood, Comet, Ah, Fiona, Sugarfoot, Scottish Lass, Phelps, Concordia. She's fairly new, so I can't think of her name. <laughs> I've cheat and peek. <laughs> but Petra, oh yeah, because she's a stone horse, and Petra in some language or other means rock, which is equivalent to stone. This is Dexter, Cadillac. Dual Choice and Ulysses. Dutch warm-blood mare making her courtesy circle before heading to the first jump in a regular working hunter class. Bethany, a little leg, kind of hanging on but then the, the two Pasifinos over there, I got the um, the little buckskin first. He's Jose Cuervo. <laughs> and the one next to him, the Palomino, is Cuervo Gold. Yeah. And then our chance is Cuervo Gold. I'd like some of that. All by Margie. Congratulations. Come on up for pictures. This rider is riding a new horse, Andre, into the jumper class. The class they are in is called Modified Jumpers, which is about four, six to five feet high. Andre is just sailing over that ox. Don't you cry, go to sleep, you little baby. And your champion today is Winter Solstice, owned by Beth Elliott. Congratulations. Good work, you guys. Good effort, good effort, good effort. I'd like to see costume and parade next. Last call, Appy. Are there any more rare plastic ponies? Produced by Julie Shapiro, Managing Director of the Third Coast International Audio Festival. Today on ReSound, we're premiering some of the things that our staff has been working on when not working on ReSound. I'm Gwen Maxi. In the summer of 2004, when I was at family camp, of all things, I ran into an old friend of mine that I'd known since junior high. 
In the course of catching up, she told me about another friend of ours from junior high who had been killed by a Chicago policeman in 2000. When I went home, I looked into the story, and I became a little obsessed with finding out exactly what had happened to him. And like Julie, I felt compelled to bring my tape recorder along. But this isn't the kind of form I usually work in. Usually my work is short and humorous. This is long and serious, and it was a tough one for me on all sorts of levels. It's part essay and part traditional documentary. I call it The Mayor of Nichols. In 1972, a girl named Jackie Smith beat me up. She was big, I was little, she was black, I was white, she was in 8th grade, I was in 7th. It wasn't the best way to start my new career at a new school in a new town. Obviously, I hadn't yet learned the social terrain. Then Earl Hutchinson came along. I didn't know much about him other than he was bigger than me, older than me, and had the air of someone who could take care of himself. One day, before science class, from a seat in the back of the room, he started giving me a hard time, teasing me. I froze. He looked tough and could easily massacre me if he wanted to. But he didn't have the air of danger and malice that Jackie did. Then again, I didn't know him from Adam, so why risk another confrontation or, worse yet, bodily harm? On the other hand, I was sick of being careful, sick of getting picked on, and sick of being scared. Then I found myself just razzing him back. Turns out, nothing could have made him happier. He started laughing, I started laughing, and from that moment on, I was in love with Earl Hutchinson. Earl was like the mayor of Nichols Middle School. He roamed that school like a lion on the Serengeti. He was cocky, confident, jaunty, and sweet as could be. He could maneuver through cliques like a pinball through pitfalls. Black, white, nerdy, tough, cool, weeny, you name it. Then there was Regina. Earl and Regina were as close to junior high royalty as you could get. This was no fleeting, spin the bottle, I'll go with you till fifth period kind of couple. They were attached, together, bonded. Earl lived catty corner from the school. Regina lived two blocks away. They had a big turf. And because he was black and she was white, whatever social cachet they had before was exponentially increased when they got together. And against all expectations and predictions, they stayed together through junior high, high school, and beyond. He was ferociously attached to her. None of us had any idea what would bring our paths to cross three decades later. When I thought about Earl, 30 years after Miss McMahon's science class, I started feeling like I owed him something, a debt of thanks, maybe. Because if Earl liked you, it was like you had a free pass to the school. The hallways were safer, the bathrooms were safer, the playground, the campus, the corner store were all places you could go without fear. The girls who might sucker punch you on the playground or accidentally pull your hair in gym would think twice if you were Earl's friend. And he knew absolutely everyone in the neighborhood. Unspoken protection. It doesn't get any better than that in junior high. And after Jackie, none of this was lost on me. Then, last summer, I ran into a friend from junior high, and we started reminiscing. I said, I got beaten up by Jackie Smith, and she said, hey, I got beaten up by Jackie Smith, too. And I asked her if she knew what Earl was doing and where he was so I might try and get in touch with him. She just looked at me. Didn't you hear, she said. Don't you remember a big story that was in all the papers a few years ago about a homeless man killed in an alley by a Chicago cop? No, I said. That was Earl she said, and my heart just dropped into the dirt. When I first heard about Earl's death, 
I only knew one thing. I knew I wanted to try and find his mother, to tell her that 30 years after I knew him, I was still thinking about him. Then I thought about bringing my tape recorder along. But when I first approached an editor about doing this story, I didn't know much. I just knew that someone I liked in junior high had been killed, homeless, in an alley. They gave me a green light to look into it. When I found out the skeleton of the story, they said, well, there's nothing surprising there, and they gave me a kill fee for the work I'd done. When I approached another editor with the story, he said to me, why should I care about this guy? Maybe he's just a loser. I tried to explain that this was one life, and while it may be a tragic sample of what happens all the time, we could examine it and see where his life took a turn, why his life took a turn, where the complexities lay, and who failed who. And then the editor said, why? I have a 13-year-old black kid shot by a white cop here in L.A. That's much more interesting. And then I started to wonder, is the fact that no one thought this was a story worthy of airtime in and of itself a story worthy of airtime? The editor's disinterest in the story seemed like the final nail in Earl's coffin, which had already been sealed pretty tight by the police department, the city, and the courts, among others. Earl, my protector, seemed to have absolutely no protection when he needed it most. I felt somehow compelled to find out what happened to him. I really don't know what made me start thinking about him 30-odd years after I last saw him. Maybe it was because I had moved back to town and was watching my own children wind their way through the same school system. Maybe it was because I passed Nichols Middle School almost every day. Or maybe, like his family claims, God had something to do with it. Who am I to say? The most thing I remember about Uncle Earl was protecting me from the worms because I was scared of worms. And he, every time he would walk me to school for my mom, you know, the day she had to go to work, he would put me on his shoulders so the worms wouldn't get me. And that's, that's something I do remember. He always protected me and kept me safe from the worms. Earl left behind a huge family. He had five brothers and sisters, numerous nieces and nephews, a few grandnieces and nephews, and lots and lots of cousins. His family is a veritable rainbow of colors and nationalities. His relatives are black, white, Native American, Christian, Jewish, you name it, the Hutchinsons have it. His mother, Pauline, is from South Carolina. She got married at 15, had her first child at 16, and eventually settled in Evanston, Illinois, with her two sisters and their families. Pauline has lived through an almost unbelievable amount of maladies and illnesses, but remains forever optimistic, due at least in part to her faith. She was a social activist and an advocate for racial harmony. But her southern accent led people to assume things about her, passing her off, as she says, as a stupid black lady. But she doesn't mind. In fact, she says, I love it. <laughs> yes, I love it. Because they don't think nothing is up here. Oh, I love it. Yes, I have to say I do. Can't you tell I talk funny oh, even I now? Know <laughs> but at least it is better. I know when I went in the hospital, when I had the stroke, when the doctor come in to see me, he said, oh, you slurred a little bit. I think that's from, the, from your stroke. I said, no, it's from where I come from. <laughs> to hear Earl's siblings describe it, the Hutchinson home was happy and loving, strict, religious, chaotic, and open. All the kids were athletic. Earl was a camp counselor for years, loved children. They were regular churchgoers, and many of the kids became choir directors when they got old enough. When Pauline bought the kids a 98-cent guitar and came home one day to find them actually playing it, they formed the Hutchinson Family Singers and performed at churches all over the city. They were a close-knit, intact family, and Earl was happy. 
Earl's older sister, Catherine. He was always trying to help somebody. He loved animals. He used to get in trouble for bringing home straight cats and dogs and whatever thing he found out in the street. He'd say, oh, this is my pet. You know, my mother used to have a fit. So he was a very compassionate person. Uh, as a child, he was compassionate. He played the role of a protector and a peacemaker. Um, we were very close. It was almost as if we were twins. Patricia, his sister 11 months older. My oldest daughter, um, she's 26, and she had spoken at his home going. And she had to write how he never forgot her birthday, although she lived out of town. And he was such a, um, a giving uncle. And he was, he was the same type of brother. He was very protective. All the children, all of his nieces and nephews, you know, get off your uncle's back, you're too big. <laughs> you know, he was like the big teddy bear. Um, there was nothing he wouldn't do for you. Later, Earl's life would be derailed by all sorts of things. But in junior high, he was safe and secure. And one day, when she was in sixth grade and he was in seventh, he fell and fell hard for Regina. He followed me home from school on his bicycle. I, I was walking home from school. I think I was crying because of my grades or something, and I knew I was going to get grounded. And he followed me home from school, and it's like, what's wrong? You know, can I help? And there's nothing we can do. <laughs> it's too late. And he <laughs> he just followed me home, and, um, and then he must have just come over and visited. He just, he was very persistent. He was very sweet, and uh, he kept coming over and coming over, and Till finally, you know, we just started hanging out. And we hung out for seven years. He put on a front that he was real tough and big bad guy. And he really wasn't a big bad guy. He was actually a very sensitive, sweet, loving person. Initially, though, in 1972, a sixth-grade white girl and a seventh-grade black boy going together wasn't always an easy sell in the halls of Nichols Middle School. There were just some really mean girls, and and they certainly didn't like me, especially after I started dating Earl. They were not nice to me at all. I, I became very isolated by them. They cornered me in the hallway um, one day, stay away from him, and blah, 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 blah. And, I mean, that was the, it was the 70s. It was, you know, and they were pretty upfront about that, you know, hey, you know, white girl, stay away. <laughs> stay away. These are our men. And it's like, come on. I didn't even, I never thought of him as black and me as white. I really didn't. Eventually, their families and friends all became one big group and alliances were built between kids in the school, cultures in the neighborhood, and families in the area that might never have happened without the Earl and Regina thing pushing it along. And I hung out with this family and, you know, ate chitlins, and it was a different uh, environment for me. I mean, my family was eating tofu and <laughs> when nobody else was. <laughs> but, you know, it was a different environment. Uh, but yet very, very similar. They had the same chaos we had. They had, you know, they went to church on a regular basis, you know. But that was an experience in itself, going to Springfield Baptist Church, which he was very involved in, and people would be saved there, and that was a very unique experience. It was my first love, and he was just a very sweet, caring individual. 
Earl and Regina's life only became more entwined after junior high. Then, suddenly, in mid-high school, the first domino fell, and things began to unravel. Earl's sister, Patricia. Well, in high school, um, that was actually when my parents divorced. And there weren't any answers to, I mean, because my mom kind of protected us, so we didn't really know there was a problem. So when that happened, it was just a shock for all of us. And he became angry. And it really rocked his world. I mean, his dad was a very domineering, strong man. And um, Earl loved him and admired him. And his father moved, and they had to move from where they lived, and everything started to change. They had lived in the same place for many, many years. And then all of a sudden, they were all moving a lot. All the stability was gone. After the family split up, Earl dropped off the football team, the wrestling team, and eventually dropped out of high school. At the same time, he started smoking. His girlfriend, Regina. He just got into smoking pot and then selling pot, and that really was the destruction of him. And that also made me start to separate. We were fighting a lot during that time. It was, a, it was a very volatile relationship towards the end. And I just saw it going nowhere. And, and then um, when I graduated from high school, we moved in together. He had gotten an apartment. We moved in together. I moved in with him. And within three months, that was it. Mm. It was done. I, I, he was dealing drugs, and I, I couldn't deal with it. He was headed nowhere fast. It's like the kid that you keep thinking, oh, you know, they're going to change and they're going to get back to who they were. And, and he just wouldn't go back. He just never would go back. So he just couldn't straighten it out. Their split was, by all accounts, a mess. Earl couldn't handle it. After that point, I went into hiding because he, we had a big fight and he was kind of violent at that point. He was, I was scared of him. It went from being protected to being scared because I, I didn't know what he was capable of. And he was extremely jealous, extremely jealous type. So Regina told Earl's family that she was moving to California. In reality, she moved to Rogers Park, just a few blocks away. Earl was very in love with Regina. And when they broke up, he, that's when he became different. Earl's older sister, Catherine. He was very withdrawn. And I said, what is it? He said, you know, Gene and I are not together. Now, they had been together since school. I mean, come on. And um, yeah, it broke up. And it was something that he just couldn't get over. And I think that's when Earl started to be different after he broke up with Gina. Within a few years, Earl was arrested for theft. His family claims it was literally over a few pennies and that he was wrongly accused. Regina's mom got letters from him in jail addressed to Regina. After he got out, Earl was hospitalized in the psychiatric unit. Though no one knows for sure, the family thinks Earl's diagnosis was depression. His younger brother was later diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. In retrospect, some siblings and in-laws wondered if he could have had bipolar disorder, and if his father, who passed away while Earl was serving his second jail term, also struggled unknowingly with mental illness. By the time Earl was released from jail the second time, he had stopped using drugs and alcohol. 
He was taking medication regularly. He was working on and off with his brother, painting houses for his stepfather, and sometimes worked day labor, whatever he could patch together. He spent lots of time with his nieces and nephews babysitting and helping around the house. He even started dating, though his relatives still think he was stuck on Regina. He sometimes rented apartments and sometimes stayed with family, but never for very long. His mother, Pauline. You know, when we could, we could get him to come here and stay. Uh, he would go to his sister out in Wheeling. Uh, he'd go to his younger brother and stay. You know, he, he lived with the family. And, and he'd say, well, I don't have my apartment no more. So we said, come home. But he would he'd always come, but then he'd, he'd stay so long, he says, I got to go. And he would leave. And then he came back to the house and he said, oh, I'm, at, I'm with the homeless people. So he started going to different homeless places. And, and I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I cook sometimes. I make bread. You know, he was a good cook. And he said, I'll cook sometimes. He said, but that's why I'm And I like it. Those are my friends. That's family, too. He used to tell me all the time, not, I'm not a kid. I'm an adult. Now, I know you want me here, Mom, but we can't, I can't stay. I got to go. I love everybody, but now you know I'm not a little boy anymore. Catherine, his older sister. Earl chose. He's, he was sitting here in the kitchen. And he said, oh, okay, Catherine, I got to go now. You know, he used to bring me money a lot. He used to bring me money. Oh, Catherine, I got a few dollars for it. Not a lot, but just something to help me, you know, around the house, buy stuff I wanted because there were times I couldn't work, you know. And uh, he was sitting here, and I remember he said, I got to go. I said, where you going, Earl? He said, oh, I didn't tell you. You know what I've been doing? You know, when I get my check, you know, I take, and, uh, take some of the guys to the park, and I buy them Kentucky Fried Chicken, and, and I feed all of them. I said, why would you think you are Jesus or somebody you nice to tease him? He said, no, I'm serious. He said, I got to go because they're they going to be expecting that meal today, and I, I got to be there. You know, you know, I've been cooking for them and stuff like that. You know, I said, really, Earl? What do you mean you cooking? Yep, I go and I work in the kitchen. You know, I go and cook meals for them. When they say Earl can cook a good breakfast, you know, I used to brag on him when I, you know, we go visit him and stuff. I'm like, Earl, you know, you ain't got to stay in this place, you know, but that's what he chose. Jim Lawler was the shelter supervisor at Rest Shelter for Men when Earl was there. He was a loved guy, you know. He was a loved guy because he was a lovable guy. And um, you have to have a, a certain amount of, you know, professional you separate yourself from these guys. You don't want to be too friendly with them or whatever. But some of them you can't help just, you know, taking as friends. And especially, you know, lovable people with great personalities, you want, you know, you make them your friend. Eight days before Earl's death, the Chicago Transit Authority announced a plan to remove homeless people from the train stations because, they said, they believed that homeless passengers could be linked to an increase in crime. And then on March 16, 2000, according to the police report, Earl was on an L platform asking people for their transfers. He was asked to move. He did. He went down to the alley. The police officer who had asked Earl to leave the area approached him in the alley. An altercation ensued. Police Department spokesperson Pat Camden. Hutchinson at this point turns and faces the officer. He is coming towards him with a silver object in his hand. The officer at this point sees this object in the uh, offender's left hand, orders him to drop the object and stop where he's at. Hutchinson refused to do so, lunges at the officer, and the officer fires a shot, fatally striking him. The silver object in Earl's hand, the one police assumed was a weapon, turned out to be a fork. 
It was daylight. They were five feet away from each other. According to the police report I got, there were witnesses that said Earl was belligerent and verbally abusive, though their names were all blacked out. The Chicago Coalition for the Homeless canvassed the area for witnesses in the days after the shooting, but couldn't find any. He was murdered. Pauline Underdown, Earl's mother. God didn't do it, and the whole police force didn't do it. Now, that's one man that got out of kilter there. He murdered him. I won't take down from that. Isn't it rather quaint that we can sit here and look at this and say, shoulda, woulda, coulda? Spokesman for the Chicago Police Department, Pat Camden. Mr. Hutchinson, he only had a knife or a fork in his hand. My God, what could you possibly do with a fork in your hand? The bottom line is a uniformed police officer says, stop, drop the weapon. Instead, Mr. Hutchinson lunges at the officer, leaving the officer no choice but to resort to deadly force. For the next year, homeless advocates called for an open investigation into the shooting and the release of the name of the officer who shot Earl. The Cook County State's Attorney's Office and the FBI opened investigations. Additionally, the FBI was supposed to monitor the state's attorney's investigation. But the name was never released, and the only investigation that was completed was done by the Office of Professional Standards. The Office of Professional Standards, which is headed by a chief administrator who works for the police superintendent, deemed the shooting justifiable. After that, all other investigations stopped. On the one-year anniversary of Earl's death, this spot ran on the local news. Charges were never filed in the death of Arthur Hutchinson, and his relatives and homeless advocates are still wondering why. ABC 7's Harry Porterfield tonight taking another look at the shooting. It was business as usual at the L stop in the 3600 block of North Sheffield on March 16th, one year ago, until 5 in the afternoon. That was the moment when gunfire was heard and a homeless man lay dying. The victim was 40-year-old Arthur Earl Hutchinson. He had been shot once in the chest by a police officer who said the man had lunged at him with a shiny object. That object turned out to be a fork. The police department said the shooting was justified. The Chicago Coalition for the Homeless immediately rallied around the incident to protest the shooting, while Hutchinson's mother asked for an investigation. For Pauline Underdown, the time since her son was shot has been a 12-month crusade to get a further investigation into her son's death. This morning on the anniversary of the shooting, Mrs. Underdown, along with members of the coalition, gathered at the office of state's attorney Dick Devine. She says she has not heard from him. It's time for justice to take place. I don't care if Earl was, whether it's Earl or anyone, whether he was on Skid Row or in the White House, no one has a right to take a life. No one has a right to take a life. We, he needs to have justice. I need to have peace. The family needs to have peace. Today, the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless observed the anniversary of Hutchinson's death with a rally at the L-Stop where he died. Harry Porterfield, ABC 7 News. A spokesperson for the Cook County State's Attorney released the following statement today. We make our decisions based on the evidence. We welcome any new evidence in this or any other case that might be brought forward and make our decisions regardless of who is involved. Police Department spokesman Pat Camden admits that it was unfortunate that at the time of Earl's shooting, the police force didn't have taser guns or other instruments at their disposal that might buy them more time to assess an escalating situation. 
In April of 2004, the police department did institute the use of about 200 taser guns with plans to increase that number over time. But after two recent incidents, one in which a 14-year-old went into cardiac arrest after police tried to subdue him with a taser gun, and another when a 54-year-old man was killed the same way, the superintendent of police canceled plans to buy and distribute 200 additional taser guns until their safety could be determined. He did not suspend the use of the 200 taser guns already in use. A lawsuit against the city is still pending in the case of the 14-year-old boy. Camden did say that the police training in dealing with the mentally ill is ongoing. Unfortunately, in situations where uniformed police officers confront armed individuals, those armed individuals don't have a big sign that say, I'm mentally ill, please don't shoot me. The police officer, believe it or not, is in a situation where he has a total of maybe two seconds to make up his mind. And then you and I can sit here ad nauseum going over cases and dealing with what if, should have, would have, could have. The bottom line is, even if you're a police officer, you have an inherent right to go home at night the same way you started your shift. I understand uh, Mr. Hutchinson allegedly was mentally ill, uh, and there were circumstances that surrounded this entire situation well after the fact as to what should have been done. What was done was a police officer protected himself in the only way he could. Since that time, we have been involved in extensive training in dealing with mentally ill people where we're given a choice. We're given a choice of being able to talk to the individual, to take the individual in custody when he's not armed. But that is not always the case. What's the problem with a homeless guy hanging out in an alley if there's no public safety problem? Before he's in the alley, he is told to move on, go about your business. But that kind of is the business okay, of a homeless not, person, isn't it? To, I'm not going to sit here and debate that issue. Now, my original premise for this interview deals with Hutchinson being shot by the police. Right. You're bringing in a totally different issue that I'm not going to discuss. Totally different question. Homeless guys in an alley. Mm -hmm. Where's the public safety problem with the homeless guy hanging out in an alley? He's, he's been told to move on. But the police officer approached him, it says, from the police report. And my question is, um, what was he doing that was a problem except loitering in a public place? Is that the only thing that he was doing? He was told to leave the area prior to that and didn't do that. He's sitting in the alley. The officer walks up to him as I would to anybody that I told to do something, and they didn't do it. Earl was shot once in the center of his chest. When the family started gathering at the hospital, and there were a considerable number of family members there, they weren't allowed to see his body. They claimed that when the family arrived and it became clear that Earl wasn't really homeless, the police scattered. Finally, they went to the morgue to view him, his sister Patricia. I was so blessed to know that when we went to view his body, he was totally groomed. His hair was freshly cut. Um, his, his beard, you know, his mustache, everything was trimmed up, nails clean, nice white gym shoes, nice clean jeans. I mean, and it was just so hard to look at that. I think that was the hardest 
that's why I know that there, a change had taken place. Because when you're going through a depression, you don't care how you look. So he started taking care of himself. And when they told us he had a fork in his hand and um, he made a threatening uh, gesture, but he wasn't close enough to do anything, even if he was making a threatening gesture, why couldn't he be shot in the leg? On March 24, 2000, Earl was given a home going, a funeral at the church where he grew up. His old girlfriend, Regina. It was packed, packed, just filled. And I think they were lined up outside. And, you know, it was very special. I mean, he would have been very happy <laughs> to see everybody there. So many ways it was sad for me. I got real angry. And I thought, oh, you know, it's so typical of the Chicago police. And um, it's just such a sad ending to someone's life. And I'm sure he had a spoon. And I'm sure it was misinterpreted. And, you know, that happened to him a lot. It really did happen to him a lot. It's because he wasn't who people expected him to be. He never was. Jim Lawler, from Rest Homeless Shelter for Men, along with other friends from the homeless shelter, attended his homegoing. I remember, you know, there being a great sense of, uh, of family and togetherness in, the, in that whole, in that whole building. Everybody that was there, you know, could either call him a best friend or a brother or, or something. And there were a lot of people there, too. You know, they were young, they were old, they were black, they were white, there was, you know... Everybody, I, 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 you know, I would see people in, in T-shirts and blue jeans and people dressed up, in, you know, in, in uh, you know, suits and ties and, you know, just everything. He was a much-loved guy. Earl's sister, Catherine. He was always a protector. He would never let nobody um, pick on any of his family members, people that he cared about and he was so easy to make friends with people and um, he would say as long as I'm around nobody won't bother you and that's how he was. Little sisters, little cousins, friends, people that you know like homeless type people that you know people that he made friends with people that people didn't like you know he was like this don't judge that person, you know, because of how they dress or what they say. He got to know a person from their heart. After months of talking to people about Earl, I still couldn't put all the pieces together. I couldn't figure out if he was a different person on the streets than he was at home, if his illness affected his ability to control his temper, if he was so often wrongly accused that he was antagonistic toward the police, or if he died as a result of police brutality at worst and rash judgment at best. I did know this much. For one year, over 34 years ago, I knew Arthur Earl Hutchinson in the prepubescent wasteland of junior high that most people would like to forget. But I never forgot him. In a single act of friendship, he changed the landscape of my junior high world, and as a result, all that followed. You don't get to meet a lot of earls in your life, a peacemaker, a protector, someone who by their very presence brings people together. 
And at the end of interviewing and investigating and trying to find out what happened to Earl between life in 1972 as a happy, cocky eighth grader and life in 2000 as a homeless man shot in the chest with a fork in his hand, I didn't know which was worse, how he died or how unremarkable it seems to be to everyone. The jaded, desensitized editors, to whom a death like this is too predictable or uninteresting. The defensive police who are judged by a body of investigators, many of whom are former policemen. Or the crowded courts, where the statute of limitations for a wrongful death case have expired. Even if there was some kind of official closure to this case, it's not something that's ever really closed. You can't just put it away and forget about it the way you would a totaled car after a bad accident or a painful memento from a romance gone south. It is possible to think of Earl as gone, but it's almost impossible to make sense of him being killed. I guess everyone who knew him just has to find a way to make it as not horrible as they can for themselves. Do something. Make some kind of attempt to appease their loss. And I guess this is mine. You know, the world didn't work for him here. I really don't know what to think about it or how to feel about it. But it, 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 I don't know what that means in the big picture for all of us, <laughs> you know. After spending so much time with this piece about Earl, I came away really frustrated. On the one hand, I felt good that getting it on the air might keep his name and his memory alive for his family, but on the other, there was no redress, there was no resolution, and there was no way to continue investigating without having an editor take interest in the story and pay for the work to be done. He was killed, and there's virtually nothing that can be done about it. And stories like this hit the news so often that we've all become completely desensitized. And what does that say about where we are as a community, a culture, or a city? It's just not a story that you can walk away from very easily. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program through thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Humanities Council. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.